Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Well, my dear friends, I want to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and we are now uh, coming towards the end of our Lenten journey together as we approach the great feast of Easter. And so uh, we've been enjoying the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen's great knowledge on the seven last words, and of course, uh, just showing us how we can use the seven last words in our daily lives. And so uh, we have truly been blessed, but uh, now we will share with you Archbishop Sheen's wisdom on the resurrection and, of course, the Easter glories of this uh, beautiful uh, triumphant victory over evil uh, when our Lord, of course, rose from the dead. So, uh, again, we will share with you uh, a reflection titled The Power of the Resurrection. And, of course, we will share with you uh, a real treat. It's uh, a radio uh, show from 1947, uh, Fulton Sheen's Easter message on the Catholic Hour, and we will, of course, uh, be uh, entertained, uh, but also inspired by uh, this great Easter message. And so, without further ado, I present to you the one and only, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he speaks about the power of the resurrection. Please enjoy. In the trilogy of sermons this day, we have taken three important items of the creed. The birth of our Lord is passion and death, and now we consider his resurrection. We consider the incarnation, the practical application was that the incarnation is continuing. Our blessed Lord lays hold of new human natures who become completely identified with him, and through them he works. In considering the passion, we said the passion of Christ is continuing. Our Lord is on the cross until the end of the world. He is consciously on the cross in those who are his and who suffer, unconsciously in those who are suffering, but they still reflect some union with Christ. And as for us who are his and are making this retreat, the application of the Passion is in undertaking and promising the Good Lord to do the symbolic sign of the Passion, to help combat evil by watching one hour a day. Now we come to the Resurrection.
There are three wounds from which we are born. There is the physical wound which makes us human. There is the spiritual wound of the baptismal font which makes us Christians. There is the temporal wound of death which brings us to eternity. Let us take the first. Suppose we were conscious while we were in the womb of our mother. Do you think that any of us would have willed to be born? We were in comfort, cared for, growing, but to be told that we were to be born into another world of which we know nothing would frighten us. We would prefer to stay where we were. To use that as an analogy for eternity. Atheist materialists will say, how do you know there's another life? Well, suppose a fetus were told that. And the child in the womb would say, you tell me there's no other life? Why do I have eyes? And it is in darkness. Why do I have hands? Here they are against my breast, my feet. They were made for walking and touching. Certainly these members of mine were meant to be exercised in another world. And so we have a reason, we have a will. We are dissatisfied with what we have. Our mind tells us an infinite truth. Our will wants to love without satiety and without fail. And there ought to be somewhere where these aspirations will be satisfied. But coming back now to the second womb, as we are born human, so too we are born spiritually in the womb of the baptismal font. And the third death that we undergo is the death to time, when we are born to eternity. And I wonder if we do not have exactly the same reluctance to face the new eternity as we would be reluctant in the womb to face time. In both cases, the future is unknown. We would much prefer to have what we are sure of and presently enjoy. And as Shakespeare says, to fly to others that we know not of. And yet, physical birth issued us into a great world of light and color, sound and poetry and beauty and loveliness. And why should we be so reluctant to face the opening of the womb of death? 
Is it going to be so hard after all? I rather think it will be like waking up in the morning on the day of promise. There will be indeed a torture that we will undergo, a terrible birth pang, and it will be this. We will be conscious of our sins on the one hand, and on the other hand, all our life, we've sought the Lord, we've lived for him. So when we come before the presence of Christ at the moment of death, there will be this awful, awful repulsion. And we will say with Peter, depart from me, O Lord, I am a sinful man. And then on the other hand, there will be this for which we've lived our life, the desire to be with Christ and possess him. And this dialectic, this tension, this pull, this difference between attraction and repulsion will be the various purgatory. How long it will last, there's no way of telling because we're in a, a different dimension. But certainly that which is bad will immediately be burned and purged away. And I never therefore can conceive of entering into eternity as something that is too much to be dreaded. I've been through two births already, a physical and a spiritual, and they have both been delightful, and I am sure that the third will be the best of all. And so there is even a certain desire to be with the Lord. We work for him, we serve him, and the lover wishes to be with the beloved. Now, the assurance, however, of another life comes from the resurrection. And as we told you in the Incarnation and the Passion, these things are not past, they're continuing. So the resurrection is continuing. But a word about it. Have you noticed that in the Gospel, the Gospels do not start with the empty tomb. That is where our theologians start. Where skeptics begin, the empty tomb. What did the angels tell those who were looking for Christ on the Easter morning? They were saying, you are looking for Jesus Christ who was what? Crucified. If you start with the empty tomb, you'll not find Christ. If you start with the crucifixion, you will. Without a good Friday, there's no Easter Sunday. Without the crown of thorns, there was no halo of light. And notice, too, that in the resurrection, our blessed Lord only appeared to those who have some knowledge and love of him. He did not appear to Pilate, to Herod, to Annas, to Caiaphas. He did not appear to the Sadducees, 
to those who crucified him, only to those who knew him. Just as the Mass is principally, not solely, but principally related to the Passion of Christ, so the Real Presence is related to the Eucharist, Easter. Easter is for those who already have some knowledge of Christ, and so is the Eucharist. Now let us apply the Resurrection. I say it is not finished. There is a resurrection of the body, even in this earth. There is a resurrection of art. There is a resurrection in music. There is a resurrection of the mind and soul. There is a resurrection of the church. Take, for example, the resurrection of the body. Just think of how many bodies that were given to vice, to Satan, we have seen risen from the dead. Risen the priest who has not seen dozens of them. In a church in London where I worked, there used to be a man come in every morning at 6.30 when the church would open, he would not go to communion until the 8.30 Mass, and he would stay until 11, go out for an hour or two, come back in the afternoon, stay four or five hours, and then come back in the evening and stay until church closed. And he always knelt. He never used a prayer book. And I had seen him there for months and months, and I thought one day I would test him, and I said to him, were you as good always as you are now? And he said, well, considering the graces that I have received, I'm far worse now than I ever was. Then he told me about himself. He told me he was an alcoholic. And he used to take off his shoes at the pub door and sell them for a drink. And he lived in the dive. He did not work. Even now he was on dole, as they call relief in England. But he said he always kept the pledge during Lent. And then would break it on Easter. This particular Shrove Tuesday, he was out at Hyde Park. And he said to himself, tomorrow's Ash Wednesday, I have to take the pledge. And he said to himself, if I can be good for 40 days, why can't I be good for 40 years? Well, that was easy to say. But he decided he would. He went to Maiden Lane Church. There are three steps leading up from the Low Street area to the church. And he came to the church, went into the front pew for benediction in the afternoon. And as benediction began, he said, there came over him an overwhelming passion for drink and lust. So much so, he said, that it was uncontrollable. And at the moment that the priest 
took hold of the Blessed Sacrament, he ran down the middle aisle and he fell down the steps. And he said he turned around, it was like tearing his heart out. And he came back into the church. And he's not had a drink since, in all these years. And I said, you spend about 12 or 14 hours a day in prayer. What do you consider a good day? He said, 24. I live in the same dive that I always lived in, and I kneel alongside of my cot all night long and pray for the men who are just exactly like I am. That's the resurrection of the body. That power had to come from somewhere. Same is true as Abadic. I was up in Harlem about a month or two ago talking to addicts, and I said to them, if I took a ball and threw it down this auditorium, the center aisle, it would go in a straight line unless one of you put out your foot and diverted me. So all of you addicts are going toward greater and greater addiction. There's nothing that's going to stop you unless some superior power intervenes and changes the direction. And that power has got to be grace. And if you have to go through an agony, you go through a good Friday because you can't have an Easter without it. You just don't start with that empty tomb. You start with Christ and him crucified. Take the case of Arthur Blessed. Arthur Blessed is a, a Baptist minister. And he came to Los Angeles and rented a house on the Strip, which is one of the foulest streets in Los Angeles. He called it the Way. He kept it open night and day, and from 10 o'clock in the morning until about 4 in the morning, about 4,000 prostitutes, pimps, addicts, alcoholics, degenerates would come into that house. Arthur Blessed always carried a scripture in his hand. He would see them as they came in and say to them, Would you like to change your life and give it to the Lord? Many of them would say no, and he would approach them again. And if they became nasty, he let them pass. But it was amazing how many stopped. And he would have each of them get down on the knees, and he would begin to pray with them, read the scripture. Every single night he had an average of 2,000 doses of heroin, cocaine, and other kinds of dope, given up in what he called his toilet service. They would be put down the toilet. And these young people would give up their addiction. One young man whom I met out there told me uh, that he was a heroin addict for three years. And he said he met Blessed when he went into the house, and Blessed. 
asked him, and he said he cursed blessed. And blessed gave him a kindly answer. And he said, he told him to kneel down. And this young man told me, he said, you know, he tore my heart out, literally, the way he prayed for me. And at the end of a half hour, I said, all right, I'm willing to give myself to Christ. And he said, I haven't touched it since. This is the resurrection of the body. And believe me, many of our cures for these things are slow, they're good, but there are also rapid cures. When there's great trust in the Lord and in the resurrection, miracles are worked. The trouble is today we no longer believe in miracles. But there are miracles of resurrection. A woman came to me once, she told me she spent $6,000 a year on alcohol. She was in the hospital four times a year with the delirium tremens. She said, I get drunk, I throw the key out of the window, lock myself in the room. And she said, how can I stop? She was not a Catholic. And I said, my good woman, I, I can't help you because you love alcohol more than you love anything else in the world. But if I can ever get you to love something else more than alcohol, then maybe you'll give it up. Because you do not drive out evil, you're crowded out. So bring something else in. And that's what we're trying to do in retreat. For any evil, bad habits that we have, we cannot by our own power say, oh, I'm going to give this up. We don't. I'm going to change. We don't. We've got to crowd it out. We've got to bring in Christ. So I spent an hour explaining the crucifixion to her. And I said, where do you start drinking? She told me, and I said, tomorrow night when you go into that bar, you ask yourself if you love our Lord enough to give it up. And come back to me, drunk or sober. She came back sober and continued to be sober, and later on received her into the church. I will not labor you with any more stories of the resurrection of the body, but let me tell you, there's the resurrection of the body. There's the resurrection of the mind and the soul, too. There are many souls that are slipping away. One can see them, sometimes. One can tell by the reaction to one thing, to the preaching of Christ. Talk on sociology, talk on psychology, talk on liturgy. These are outer truths. Outer truths are truths that do not affect us, like the distance of the earth and the sun. But you begin to talk about Christ as an inner truth, we become involved. And so there will be a kind of rebellion and a reaction against it. These minds, too, can be saved. Here in England, the editor of the newspaper of the Communist, the Daily Worker, is listening one night to the radio. 
what they call the wireless. He and his wife, he too was a member of the Communist Party. And I think it was Litvinov who was on the radio at the time. And Litvinov was talking about peace. And finally she got up and she shut off the radio. She said, I don't think Litvinov wants peace. I think he wants war. And he said, don't you be talking that way. You are not talking like a communist. She said, I don't care what I'm talking like. I don't think he wants peace. She said, if you continue to, he said, if you continue to talk that way, I will report you to the party. And you will be disciplined. She said, report me. I don't care. He said, do you know what you're beginning to talk like? You're beginning to talk as if you might become a Catholic. She said, I am. He said, shake, so am I. Now, here's a husband and wife, Douglas Hyde. He told me this story himself. Editing the communist newspaper, living together, eating together, working together. What made that ball change direction? What gave them the resurrection? Suddenly they saw Christ. Oh, how often when I am talking, when I see souls that could be risen from the dead and could change, how I wish the Lord would give me the power to do it. Take Louis Boudens, the editor of the communist newspaper of the United States, whom I received into the church. When I met him, he started to abuse me. That's always the reaction. But later on, he and his wife and children were received into the church, and one of his daughters is now a nun. The resurrection of the mind. Take the winner of the Nobel Prize in Russia, Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn was a communist, an atheist. Last November he was baptized. The winner of the Nobel Prize. And in one of his stories called The First Circle, First Circle of Hell, Gabe is in love with a, a girl who is a member of the secret police. But Gabe is married. And he knows that if he refuses to live with this police woman, she will report him to the government and he will go to Siberia. He breaks with her, is sentenced to seven years in Siberia, because he said to her, I believe in moral absolutes. I shall return to my wife. The resurrection of the body. The resurrection of music. Beethoven's 
Seventh Symphony and Missa Solemnis, he never heard. At the age of 31, he decided to take his life. How could he be a musician and a composer and deaf? And then he said, read in the scriptures, the kingdom of God is within. So he said, from now on, I'm going to accept my trial in union with the passion of Christ. And then began his great music, third, fifth, seventh symphony, and the Eroica. The resurrection of a mind of art. He could have gone downhill so easily. So resurrections are taking place if we only believed in the resurrection. But today we use the word hope as Ernest Bloch uses it, meaning futurity, everything will be fine. We used to have the signs plastered all over churches. Indeed there is hope, but believe me there is Christian hope only in the light of the cross and the resurrection. It is not in futurity. Things do not necessarily get better. White fences do not become wider. Gardens do not become less weedy. And we are going down spiritually get worse and we rot. Future does not make us better. Oven by itself. When we have this outlook on life and believe in the power of the resurrection, that we can all change, then life is adventurous. One of the reasons today that people are so pessimistic, full of anxieties, fears, psychosis, is simply because life has no meaning for them. They can never see that the great law of life is you come out of a grave and you can with the power of God. What a difference there is between detective stories and the Christian gospel. All detective stories put off the end to the very last page. There's a great mystery play in London that has been running for about 15 or 20 years. And when you go into a theater in London, you tip the girl who gives you your seat. And one man refused to tip the girl, and she said to him, the butler did it, and spoiled the mystery. So in, in pagan mysteries, detective stories, it's always you have to wait until the end. But, in the great classical literature, Homer, Shakespeare, they tell you the story at the very first line. You know what's going to happen. But it is then done so skillfully that you have a great interest in how one achieves that end. I remember 
in the days when we crossed the Atlantic by boat, and when we were seasick so often. As Ling Lardner said, the first half hour you're seasick, you're afraid you're going to die, and the next half hour you're afraid you won't. And I can remember one trip where there was a dog up on the top deck, and he barked at everyone, no one could placate him, and he refused to eat. I can remember another voyage where there was another dog, and a little girl used to come up to see him about ten times a day. And what made the difference? Well, the first dog didn't know where he was. Here he was in the midst of an ocean, no familiar smells, nothing that he recognized. What's going to happen to him? Life was dull. For the other, well, the little girl, somehow or other, would never have put him there unless she knew that he was going to be all right. So he would suffer it for a while, and there must be somewhere a pilot that is going to bring them out of the difficulty. And so life became a great adventure. We know where we are going, and therefore our life can be full of joy, no matter what happens. As T.S. Eliot put it. Under the analogy of a surgeon operating, the wounded surgeon flies the steel that questions each distempered part. Beneath his bleeding hands, we feel the soft compassion of the healer's art, solving the enigma of the fever chart. So, as Saint Paul says, whether we abound or whether we need. There is joy. If we die, we will be with Christ. If we live, Christ will be with us. What else can we want? That's peace. That's happiness. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Bishop Sheen presents with your host, Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that first reflection from Archbishop Sheen on the power of the resurrection. And I want to wish everyone a happy Easter. It's uh, been uh, a long uh, journey this Lenten season. Uh, Many of you, of course, um, shared our joy with uh, being added uh, to a number of Radio Maria Uh, families. Uh, Of course, we are now heard uh, in the United States of America, in Canada, Australia, and the Philippines. And of course, we receive good news that uh, our broadcast is being uh, transmitted in uh, England, in the UK. And uh, our good friends in Ireland are very favorable to us too. Uh, Again, we will wait uh, for official announcements uh, in the future of to uh, when uh, you know the regular scheduling of the show will come Uh, a lot of times people insert Bishop Sheen's uh, wisdom uh, you know through uh, the week and uh, again uh, it's an always a welcome uh, talk that's for sure 
I, it's never a bad day to listen to Bishop Sheen. <laughs> In fact, he can brighten our day uh, because he helps make sense of everything. And so uh, we're truly blessed here at Radio Maria to share uh, Bishop Sheen with you. All right, uh, we will now uh, share with you uh, Fulton Sheen's Easter address from uh, the year 1947. And again, um, our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, so again, this Easter joy, uh, even though this message was given in 1947, uh, we still share that joy in the year 2023. So may I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, a blessed Easter to you all. Easter gives us hope in the midst of catastrophe and courage in times of trouble. It avoids two false extremes, that false optimism which believes the world is getting better regardless of how we live, and also it avoids the pessimism of totalitarianism, which believes that the individual man is so corrupt that only a dictatorship can control his errant impulses. Rather does the resurrection teach a thoroughgoing optimism through pessimism. By affirming a resurrection through a passion, a crown of glory through a crown of thorns, and a victory on Easter Sunday through the ignominy of Good Friday. Each year we have heard this law proclaimed in Holy Week, and yet we are inclined to be discouraged in times like these. In this we are like those associated with our Lord who doubted his resurrection. That is one of the astounding facts about the resurrection story. Mary goes to the tomb on Easter morn not to greet a risen Christ, but to anoint his dead body. The holy women come to the sepulchre not to rejoice in victory, but to state a problem as they say, who shall roll us back the stone from the door of the sepulchre? When Mary Magdalene finds the tomb empty, she does not explain it by a resurrection. She says they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we know not where they have laid him. And then when the angel spoke to the women and said, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord was laid. The women then hurried to the apostles to tell Peter and John. And Peter and John refused to believe the resurrection, saying, These are idle tales. In other words, the women are imagining the resurrection. Christians are the greatest agnostics of all time, in the sense that they will not believe in Christ until he has overcome their disbelief by doing the impossible and giving to death its death and the earth its greatest wound, an empty tomb. It would seem that the three appearances of our blessed Lord on Easter Sunday were all directed to curing our doubts and giving his church three deep spiritual lessons. 
The first appearance was early Easter Sunday morning to Mary Magdalene in the garden, who, when she saw our divine Lord, cast herself at his feet. She is always at his feet, anointing at the foot of the cross and now in the garden. And our Lord says to her, Do not touch me. In other words, do not detain me within the tomb or think that I must always be as I was before my resurrection. I am now the source of life, not a dead body to be covered with spices. I am the same Christ, and yet I am different. And the lesson to the church is, the church is not to be the same in each succeeding era of history. It is less a continuous thing than something that dies and comes to life again. It is always converting each new age, not as an old religion, but as a new religion. To those in the Middle Ages who thought the church should be the same as it was in the days of the catacombs and the anchorites, the church says, touch me not. And to those of the 19th century who would like to keep the church of the Middle Ages with its Gothic cathedrals and Gothic summers, the church says, touch me not. I am dead to those days, but alive to these. And now in the 20th century, to those who would like to see the church enjoying the nominal freedom of the 19th century, the church says, touch me not. I must die to this age in order to live again. The lifespan of the church through 1900 years is not to be compared to a man 100 years old whose memory is failing and whose vitality has vanished. Rather, the church is like the same man who lived through a series of lives, each one of which began with the full bloom and promise of a man of 30 and ended at 33 in ignominy and death and then rose again at 30 to begin living all over again. The trees that are now budding in this springtime season are the same trees that were so firmly rooted in the ground last winter, and yet there's something new about them. For if they did not die, they would not be living again. And the church in like manner is not a survival. The church has returned again and again in the Western world of rapid changes in order to reconvert the world. In each new era, the stone must be rejected by the builders of that era. But within its generation, it is brought back from the rubbish heap of the world to be made the head of the corner, the rock against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. For our God is one who has found his way out of a grave and who at the most unexpected moment is seen walking on the wings of the morning. The second appearance of our divine risen Savior on Easter was in the afternoon. Some disciples were walking along the Emmaus Road and apparently they were among the less important members of the little community which followed our divine Lord. As they journeyed, they talked about their disappointment and the fact that Christ had been crucified and had not driven out the Romans. In the midst of their gloom, they were joined by a stranger who walked by their side and then finally broke into their conversation. 
the stranger was our Lord himself, who said to them, Foolish and slow of heart, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things in order to enter into his glory? Catastrophe is the condition of greatness. And the lesson is the church rises to new life only after it has been persecuted by the age that is dying. On this point, the church differs from all secular civilizations. Secular civilizations rise, fall, and never appear again on the face of the earth. Babylon, Sparta, and Carthage will never have a rebirth. But the church has the power of self-renewal, and it may be that the decay of secular civilizations is the roadway on which the chariot of God mounts to its divinely appointed destiny. Or to change the figure, all the sufferings of civilization may be the way of the cross on the way to the crucifixion and the glory of divine triumph. One would think that after 1900 years of experience, the world would cease bringing spices to anoint a dead church. It was supposed to have been killed during the first ten persecutions. It was supposed to have withered up in the light of the age of reason. It was supposed to have been swallowed up by the earth in the era of revolution. It was supposed to have been antiquated by the advance of science. It is now supposed to be buried by our contemporary anti-religious revolutions. The fact is, however, that it is just being pushed back and forth across the earth and then down into the catacombs from which one day it will come out to reconquer a new age. And if it is going into the catacombs today, it is doing so just as Christ went into the grave. And the world might just as well look for the end of the church as they might look for the freezing of a star. For our God is one who has found his way out of a grave. The third appearance of our Lord was on Easter Sunday evening. The apostles were gathered in the upper room because of fear of the people who might have been provoked to violence because they preached the resurrection of our Lord. The chamber was securely locked against intrusion or surprise because of their fear. Not a bolt was drawn. No door was opened. No breach was made in the wall. There was no visible movement from within or without. One moment they were alone. The next moment they looked and behold, the risen Christ was there in the midst of them saying, Peace be to you. The lesson for the church is that when the world's predicament is most desperate, there is a breaking in of a new factor from the outside which completely changes the situation. When Christians most huddle together in fear, the power of God is made most manifest. In times of darkness when all else has failed, there is a divine invasion, a God who comes to the rescue. That is why we are not downcast today though there is great persecution in the world, 
Though the church in Europe, the eastern part of Europe, has barricaded its doors against the NKVD agents. Though tolerance in other parts of the world is passing into persecution, as it always does. Though there are more martyrs for the faith in Poland, Lithuania, Western Ukraine, Latvia and Estonia in any one week since World War II than in 50 years of Roman persecutions, Though the swords of the enemy today are blunted from persecuting Christians, it may be true, however, that the persecutions have psychologically placed the church in a more favorable position for revealing its true nature than ever before. Though our shepherds in Europe have only iron staffs, and though their flocks are shorn and bleating lambs, the day is near. It is even happening now when the church is making sons of love out of fathers who hate, for our God is one who found his way out of a grave. If the basis of Christianity were anything else than a God who found victory through defeat, then we would be without hope. If he were a worldly success, then we would all have to be materialists. If he were a failure and never rose from defeat, then we would be vindictive and we would hate the three civilizations which crucified him. If he were only a man, he would be forgotten, as all men are. If he wrote a book, we would all have to be professors and only the learned would be saved. But since he came to this world to conquer death and evil, the more the world fails us, the more he helps us. And how long this conflict between good and evil will last, we know not. How long our faithful will be driven into Siberia, we know not. How many more Stepanaks will have to go to prison unjustly, we know not. How long we will crouch in fear behind closed doors before the light of the world breaks through with its peace be unto you? We do not know. How many swords will have to be unsheathed? Whether the conflict will be bloody or unbloody, we know not. How much longer it will continue to be a crime in certain parts of the world to be a Christian, we know not. There is only one thing that we do know. And that is that in the power of the risen Christ, we have already won. Only the news has not yet leaked out. And with these words, we bring to a close our series of broadcasts for this season. They were a commentary on the papal encyclical concerning communism. Our position has been threefold during these broadcasts. First, prayerful affection, deep sympathy for the Russian people. Two, war is not the answer to communism. Three, we must overcome all evil by good. That is, by deepening our spiritual lives. 
That is why those pastors and those individuals who have written and wired me telling me that they have already begun nocturnal adoration in reparation for the sins of mankind and to pray for the spiritual conversion of communists in Russia have made the greatest contribution that anyone is making in the entire world. A number of colored mothers, Catholic and non-Catholic, have written me telling me that the hospital which we started a few years ago is now too small to accommodate them. Well, here's good news for you. Three weeks from today, I will fly down to Mobile, Alabama. And under the inspiration of Bishop Tulin, we will break ground for a new maternity hospital for you, which will cost a third of a million dollars. And may God in his mercy inspire the bounties and helps that are necessary to finish it. And now may I come as a beggar to you to ask a favor. As you know, the purpose of these broadcasts is to bring souls to God. Nothing else really matters. If I could be sure that any word of mine during these last three months has been used by God as an instrument to bring one single soul closer to him, then all the efforts and work that we have put into them would have been eminently worthwhile. The only reason I want anyone to listen to me is in order that I might betray them in sweet disloyalty to the all-loving God. But how can this come to pass without your help? As the flowers cannot spring from the earth without sunshine and dew, so neither can we bring souls to God without prayer. And at the end of a series every year, my treasury of prayers is rather low. I have need of replenishing the store. The spiritual dynamo needs recharging. And as the beggars of old went from door to door, this modern beggar goes from radio to radio. To each Jew, to each Protestant, and to each Catholic in my audience, asking you to pray for me in order that next year we may have a rich harvest of souls for God, to give people peace of mind and that happiness which only God's grace can give. If I were campaigning for office, I would ask for your votes. But since I'm campaigning for souls, I want something much more precious. I want your prayers. If you write me this assurance, I will answer your letter in thanks for the most precious gift a mortal can give. Don't forget this plea. Please don't. I hate to leave you. Can it be that the invisible is closer than the visible? One seems so close to you during a radio season. Bye now. Bye. And from the bottom of my heart, God love you. Well, my dear friends, I want to wish you all a happy and a holy Easter. And I want to thank you for joining me this week on Bishop Sheen Presents. I love how Fulton Sheen pleads with his audience to uh, pray for his apostolic work and 
uh, we also would like to make that same plea that you would pray for us so that we can help to save souls and I think of one of my favorite quotes by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen is simply unless souls are saved nothing is saved and how important it is to save souls so help us in the mission of saving souls and we would ask you to prayerfully consider uh, giving a donation to Radio Maria so uh, please uh, do what you can for our apostolic outreach well my dear friends I look at the clock and I see that our hour has come to an end and uh, I just want to thank everyone who has visited uh, my humble little website called Bishop Sheen today.com and there you'll find hundreds of hours of free videos and audio recordings of the venerable Archbishop Sheen and a great listing of all the books that he wrote and the various links where you can purchase uh, his books and uh, many of you have purchased books for the Lenten season and I appreciate that uh, but still uh, give a visit to bishopsheentoday.com and you'll be glad you did. My dear friends, may you have a blessed Easter, and until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.